if you could bottle mania, then it would be the biggest selling drug in the world, eh? It's like a torrent, like a real raging river, and you're riding on it. And that's why it's so addictive. People want to go back to it, even though they know that they've been through these hell experiences where they've had the nightmarish depressions. People still will go off their medication and be enticed by the fact that they can go back into mania. Welcome to Are You Mental, a podcast about mental health. My name is Mick Andrews, and today we're exploring bipolar disorder. Although I don't love the word disorder, so you'll hear me just calling it bipolar throughout the episode. Most of us know that people with bipolar get really fast and frantic sometimes, and really down and depressed other times. But there's actually a lot more to it than that, as we're about to discover. And bipolar affects roughly 1 in 50 people, so if you don't live with it yourself, there's a pretty good chance you know someone who does. I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who's given me feedback on the other episodes. Do keep it coming. And if you haven't listened to episode 1, then the short version of why I'm making this podcast is to give us all a much better understanding of different mental health struggles, so we can be more accepting of those of us who experience them. So, with that in mind, Let's get on with it. This week, I talked to two people who live with bipolar and a psychologist to give us an idea of what bipolar is and how it functions. First up, here's David. My name is David Hamilton, and um, I live with bipolar disorder. I have now for 24 years, but that's not all that I am. I enjoy playing guitar been in a couple of bands in my time. I I, I enjoy writing poetry. As you're about to hear, David's long journey with bipolar has been a really turbulent one, dating right back to his teenage years. Well, the first stages of my bipolar illness was when I was 14 years old at Westlake Boys High School. I was doing really well. I was um, playing rugby, I was playing cricket. I was doing quite well at school in my studies. But my world started to fall to bits, and it was an anxiety that was the first stage of my illness. Anxiety is the first thing you felt. Anxiety, yeah. Um, real deep anxiety that led to depression. Mm. There wasn't the mania present. It was just the anxiety. And it, what, what ended up happening is was I couldn't handle going to school. Um, I asked Dad if I could work with him. And um, Dad let me actually work with him doing some ar- arborist work. Mm. And I was just dragging the trees and chucking it on the back of the truck and and not and not really functioning properly. And Dad was asking me what's wrong. You know why 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 can't you go to school? You shouldn't really be working with me. You're you're only 14 years old. And to cut a long story short, my my dad went to Australia for about three weeks. And um, that's when I took a turn for the worse. Uh, I was living with my mum, and um, I, I went catatonic which is where I couldn't feed myself, I couldn't shower myself, I couldn't sleep. Mum had to spoon feed me. So you're kind of seized up and all I was seized. I was absolutely paralysed. And um, I remember going to a youth line counsellor and um, my mum took me there because she didn't know what was going on with me and she was trying to figure out why I was behaving and, and like this and, and, and she wanted some answers. And I remember just freezing up because my anxiety was so strong. I couldn't answer the questions that he was asking me. 
I just felt completely lost. And I remember after that interview, uh, I was in the car and I just broke down. I just started crying. And I remember mum saying, don't worry, Dave, we're going to figure this out. We're going to find out what's wrong with you. Yeah. I was absolutely frightened, just so frightened. Um, the fear that I experienced at that young age was pretty much unparalleled with some of the fear I've experienced throughout my life. And there's been a lot of fear. It's like fire, it, it, it perishes, it burns you from right inside yeah. and there's just ashes left and it's all grey and it's all black. Um, eventually I did come out of that depression. It took me months and I started to get quite flighty. I started to get quite rapid in mm -hmm. terms of my thoughts. And it was the first time I've, I'd, I'd experienced this. I was just a child, remember, I was only 15. And I remember getting into, involved in theatre in Twelfth Night with Shakespeare and really enjoying that. But I was going through a hypermanic phase and um, I remember as we were doing the show, one lady, her mother had died and it really affected me. Mm. And during the interval, I ran out onto the rugby field and curled up into a ball and started crying. Mm. And, then, and then that weekend, I played rugby for the first 15, mm. scoring a try, um, setting up one as well. And as I scored that try, I started crying. And I just tried to cover my head because I, I couldn't help but f feel all this emotion. Is it, is it tears of joy or, or is it...? No, it's not. It's tears of, of sadness because I didn't know what was happening to me at that point. I was lost. I didn't know what to do. And um, I went back home to, to my dad's place and um, I went to Starship Hospital and that's where um, I got diagnosed as bipolar disorder. Mm, wow. What's it like watching your life fall apart in front of your own eyes? Oh, it's horrible. It's terrifying. It's morbid. It's, it's, it's really confusing. It's just like you're falling down a trapdoor and there's, there's no way out. You, you, you're at the bottom and it's all black and you can see up and there's a, there's a grate but you can't reach it and it's your only way of fr to freedom and it's just dark and um, yeah, it's really it's really horrible put, put it that way Yeah, yeah So sounds like most of that was in your kind of high school years um what were things like for you as you moved out of your teens? Well, things things got a bit deeper, if you if you can imagine that. Wow! I got involved in a lot of crime when I was about twenty, hmm. due to the fact that I was quite hypermanic and quite reckless, and I managed to get quite a few convictions. Hmm. And there were people that I hurt, that I'm really sad and sorry about. Fortunately, I managed to make up for some of that with restorative justice. I managed to make up with one of the person that, that, I, that I hurt, and he forgave me. What was it like being forgiven by him? Oh, it was a massive weight off my shoulders because I took these things pretty personal, and I had a big burden of guilt and shame. And um, to realise that this person 
had forgiveness for me was, was a massive weight off my shoulders. As you can hear, David's experience with bipolar has been really intense and really disruptive to his life. He's got a lot more of his story to tell us, but before he does, this is a good time to take a step back and explore what exactly bipolar is and how it functions. My favourite person to do that with is our resident psychologist, Nettie Cullen. And my favourite place to start is the most obvious one. What is bipolar? Bipolar is a mood disorder that is characterised by extreme swings in mood, emotion, thought and behaviour. And so bipolar, by definition, is talking about two poles, two extremes, from the very, very, very high to the very, very, very low. Now, most of us will have experienced mood swings, and that's a really normal, natural thing. This is taking that to another level, where those mood swings are significantly more extreme. Because in, in preparing to make this episode, I've been thinking about it quite a lot and I've noticed that, I, you know, I get high and I get low and the other day I had a meeting with some friends and we're starting a new podcast and I got really excited about it and after the meeting I was kind of like fizzing, you know, mm, mm. and then I opened up my laptop and I just bashed out the script, you know, it was mm. just kind of flowing out of me and I forgot to have lunch and and I kind of, afterwards I thought, wow, is that like a really, like a really, really mild version of mania almost, that, that kind of fizzing feeling. And it, it made me kind of wonder, do people with bipolar, are they kind of missing that thing that stops that initial fizz from just carrying on and getting bigger well, it, and bigger? Yeah, it's that being unregulated. So that's a natural response to an exciting experience. Mm. But for the most part, we're able to regulate that and we're able to keep our behaviour within the normal range. Mm. But if something happened that shifted your focus, you would be able to shift your focus. If somebody came in and said, oh, Mick, I've got some really bad news, you would be able to regulate your emotional state to match the new circumstance, right? With bipolar disorder, when somebody's in a manic state, They can't do that. They Mm -hmm. can't regulate that state. They can't not be manic if the situation requires them not to be. Mm -hmm. Just like they can't not be depressed if that's what they're stuck in at that time. So we've already started talking about mania or being manic. And I know that bipolar used to be called manic depression, Mm. right? What's mania? Mania is that state of elevation that extreme experience of euphoria, energy. It's sometimes kind of talked about as a really, a real feeling of positivity, except that it's not, that doesn't quite capture it, I don't think. That it's this, this excited, elated, euphoric state that is over and above what's, what's normal and natural, especially under the circumstances. Sounds pretty, no, sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, well, people often talk about it being really fun. However, it can also be quite destructive because in that state, we can end up with this distorted sense of our capabilities, as this elevated sense of self-confidence 
Mm. So unjustified self-confidence, mm. um, a belief in my ability to do something that isn't realistic. And that means I then take risks. I'm reckless. I don't fully appreciate what the consequences of my behaviours and my actions might be. I don't consider the impact on the people around me. I spend my 25 years of savings because it feels really good in that moment. And what, what would be going on for someone mentally when they're experiencing mania? Well, I guess those thought processes match that emotional state. Well, what you can see it in somebody's speech. They have this, it's called pressured speech, yeah. rapid and pressured speech where the, the thoughts are coming one on top of the other and they're, they're jostling for attention and there's so much energy behind them. There's so much enthusiasm behind them and these thoughts, are, each and every one of them is so valuable and so mind-blowing that they need to be thought and expressed and, and engaged with and acted on. Mm. And there's this grandiose idea of how wonderful this discovery I've just had is or how incredible this thought that I've just had is. It's a, it's a very magnified and distorted sense of reality. Mm. Mm. And you hear about delusions of grandeur mm. in relation to bipolar. Is yeah, that what that is? That is what that is. It's this distorted sense of what's, what's real. And that's where it borders on psychotic. And you can get those psychotic features in a manic episode where, you, where somebody is quite delusional. And so thinking stuff's happening when it's not really happening. Yeah, believing things are true when they're not true. Mm. What about physically during mania? Okay. So physically, somebody will have a whole lot of energy. They won't be sleeping. They'll have this insatiable appetite, often sexual appetite. They'll be believing that they're on top of the world and their bodies will be, will be amped up along with that. So you'll see people, and this is part of what, what people often love about these episodes, is they have so much energy mm. and they can produce so much because they don't need to sleep. They don't need to eat. They can just keep on going and keep on going and keep on going, mm. which of course in the moment feels great. After the fact, it can be quite devastating and people can actually hurt themselves. They can do quite a lot of damage to their bodies because, because they, haven't, they haven't been taking care. They haven't been sleeping. They haven't been eating. Mm. They haven't been putting sunblock on. They've been, <laughs> they've been on their bike riding across Australia with no water. From New Zealand, that is a yeah. bit stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's this irritation that people don't get their brilliance. And <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> this is such a fantastic idea, and all of these morons around me just don't mm. seem to Why be grasping. Why are there not two million people listening to this podcast? Exactly. Hi, it's Mick here. I hope you're enjoying Are You Mental? As you can imagine, making this podcast is a pretty time-consuming pursuit, and I often get asked how people can support the podcast. So what you can do is go to GoFundMe.com and search the words, Are You Mental? That's GoFundMe.com and search, Are You Mental? Okay, on with the episode. Um, I've heard a couple of terms, and I'm hoping you can clear it up. I've heard mania, but I've also heard hypermania. Yeah. So hypo, hypomania, hypo, not hyper. Yeah, hypo. Mm. Um, hypo means less than. Mm. So it's 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 a muted expression 
of the same kind of stuff. So you'll see a lot of those same features, but perhaps not to the same intensity or the same degree. And often the thing about hypermania is that often it doesn't disrupt a person's sort of social occupational functioning to the same degree. Mm. So you might get some of that productivity and some of that fun energy mm. without it meaning somebody loses their job or, or destroys their relationship. So often with hypomania, it's, it's more on the, oh, that's a bit weird and that's a bit strange, but it's not so bizarre that it's as destructive. So the consequence of that is that it might not necessarily be picked up. Mm. So it's... Particularly in a society that really values productivity. Absolutely, absolutely. But it is also it also has a big impact on a person and their, their, their well-being mm. because they're still not sleeping as much as they probably need to and then their life isn't in balance and so it does still have a damaging effect on their health and well-being. We're going to go back to David now who's had his fair share of experience with hypermania. It's a rich state. It's, uh, it's a creative state. It's a place where there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of wealth of intellect mm. and knowledge. Many, many times I've spent night, nights just awake writing in my journal about poetry and words just come to you and phrases just come to you and you think to yourself, how did I do that? <laughs> um, wow. And, and Is it good stuff? Like, do you look at it a year later and go, oh, that's, that's, that's some good yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. I mean, Charles Dickens was a manic depression, and he oh. wrote a lot of his novels when he was in the hypermanic state. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's almost a limitless sexual energy that, that, that you experience when you're in a hypermanic phase. Mm. And um, a lot of the time you try and sort of conquer that energy by going from bar to bar to bar searching for 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 sex mm. that's where um, sometimes you, you obviously don't make the right choices you know visiting brothels a lot of the time because I had a lot of energy around there right yeah and and as well as that heightened sexual energy it, it sounds like you had like the ability to stay up all night and writing poetry and a, a kind of pace of thought that was almost superhuman. Kind of. Um, it's rapid. It's like a real, it's like a torrent, like a real r raging river. And, and, and you're riding on it. And, and, and at some point you're going to go down a, a waterfall. Um, <laughs> right. And, and, and when you do, you're going to crash. Mm. Um, and you know that at the time. Not really. <laughs> you're just riding with it. And you're having such a good time and you're having such a wonderful experience that you don't even think that anything's going to go wrong. You're just riding that river. Like I've said to people, if you could bottle mania, then it would be the biggest selling drug in the world, eh? Wow. It's, it's, a, it's a far out experience, and that's why it's so addictive. But the more insight people gain and the more sort of introspection that people are aware of within themselves, they realise that, that, that it's not worth it because the fear and the fright and the, the hell, it's hard to, to, to put into words, um, but some of the experiences that I've had are just so scary and utterly frightening, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I really wouldn't. So we have hypermania, which is like mild mania, and we have full mania. 
but I was curious to know when it crosses over from one to the other. It's, it's usually when there is more disruption in a person's life. Where, and also, I guess, when those behaviours or experiences shift from being strange to being truly bizarre. Mm. And, and psychosis, is that something that you might experience in mania, but, but not hypermania? Yes. When you go into mania, that's where the wheels start to fall off a bit. What you're writing and what you're producing and what you're thinking is losing its edge because it's just getting too fast and too quick mm. and, and you can't keep up. And, um, and what happens next? Well, that's often when some psychosis can come around and, and, you, can, and, and you can sort of um, get lost in the unreal, irrational beliefs that, that come with that. And what's been a, quite an intense experience of psychosis that you've had? I can relate one story. Um, I was in the secluded room at the hospital and there was some blankets by the edge of the wall and what they looked like to me were little baby lion cubs and they're all huddling together. And then I could hear a lion roar and um, I froze. And then I heard, the, I heard it roar again and then I heard it, then I heard its footsteps coming down the hallway. And then I heard some voices in my head. It was my dad's best mate saying, it's a 600 kilogram beast, it's gonna tear you to bits. And I was, I was, I was paralyzed with fear. And how real did it seem at the time? Oh, absolutely real. Mm. Yeah, I can't, I, can't, I can't tell you how real that felt. So to you, there was a 600 kilogram lion about to attack you? Yeah, there was, and it was coming my way. When it comes to being diagnosed with bipolar, most people are either bipolar 1 or bipolar 2. Here's Nettie on the difference between them. Bipolar 1 is when there is both the experience of a major depressive episode over a period of two weeks or so, two weeks or more, as well as the experience of a manic episode, so a full-blown manic episode, mm. and that needs to be for about a week or more. Okay. Okay. It only takes one episode of mania mm to meet the criteria for the diagnosis of bipolar 1. Yeah, and so bipolar 2? Bipolar 2 is different from bipolar 1 in that the highs aren't as high. So you have hypermania instead of a full-blown manic episode. Mm. You still get that major depressive episode. Mm. So the lows are as low, but the highs aren't as high. So how, you know, your manic episodes, how long have they been? Well, I'm one of those people that gets stuck in the mixed mood state. What's the mixed mood state? The mixed mood state is where it's going from mania into depression and it's bouncing off the two. Wow. And it's, it's, it's really corrosive. I think um, I've read somewhere that it's particularly dangerous because you're having those really dark thoughts yeah. but you've still got the energy to act yeah, on them. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's overwhelming. I know that there were times where I, I believed that werewolves were running the world and that they were running on top of the world and they were creating a black hole sun and, and it was going to come down to earth and it was going to wipe out humanity. Hmm. And this is what my fear was. And I, I could see nurses in, in the secluded wards 
morphing into werewolves. I was hallucinating. Wow. wow. And that, that was a powerful, powerful hallucination of, of, of real deep psychosis that was in the mixed mood state where I was going from mania into depression. How long does that last? It can last a long time. I was in it for probably about six weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it sounds like, by the way you're talking about it, it sounds like that's the scariest one for you. Yeah, yeah, it is. As you've probably guessed, David has bipolar 1, where he's had manic episodes that have involved psychosis. But many people who live with bipolar experience something a lot less intense. Sally is one of those people. In fact, because her bipolar was less disruptive to her life, she didn't even discover she had it until she was 36. I was diagnosed with bipolar nearly five and a half years ago, and that was at the birth of my child, my my daughter, who's turning six soon. And I was prepared for postnatal depression after the birth of my child, but what actually happened was I was in a hypermanic state. What I wasn't prepared for was feeling on top of the world like everything was amazing and I couldn't work out what everyone's problem was because I didn't need to sleep and I was um, doing all sorts of crazy things. I was breastfeeding topless and and I was making loads of lists and then I was asking the midwives if they would provide me with a stapler so I could staple the pages together that I didn't need to look at anymore. Like you have such racing thoughts. Like you jump from one topic to another and you don't stay on the, with the thought that you're having. It's just like, it's almost like too fast. And was that the first time you'd experienced hypomania? No, I don't think so, looking back now. Okay. So there was a time when I was at work and... How long before this are we talking? Um, I was about 26. Okay, so 10 years before yeah, that. Yeah, okay. so 10 years before that, there was an episode where I... Um, I was in a meeting, in a staff meeting, um, they kind of excused me, you may go now, and instead of going back to work, what I did was I grabbed my cell phone and I went and hid in the bushes, and I um, was in the bushes of the car park at work, ringing my friend who was a GP in training, and I was saying, they're all after me, they're all talking about me. I was really paranoid. Wow. And, and I started swearing as well, which is really out of character. And so she said, you need to go to the HR lady, say that you're unwell, go straight home, call your sister and get her to take you to the doctor. I went to the GP and after ranting and raving in his office mm. and swearing a lot, and they had no benchmark to compare it to, you know, for all they knew. I was you just like a very sweary person. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so the doctor prescribed benzos. I think he said something like, "You need to go home and have a sleep." Mm. He might. He just might not have had the experience to think of mental health. So I don't really. I don't blame the guy. I think it's just it was sad that it was a missed opportunity. Mm. I think that it, I should have been brought to the attention of mental health professionals at that time and it's just unfortunate that I didn't because that was before I got married it was at the beginning of my adult life really and I would have made some decisions differently if I had a diagnosis of bipolar. So would I be right in saying that in that 10 year period before you were diagnosed 
you might have only experienced hypomania a handful of times. Yes. Because she was hypomanic when she gave birth, Sally wasn't allowed to be alone with her baby for the first six weeks of her life. Then, eight months later, her mood started to swing in the other direction. I became really depressed to the point where um, it was risky. As we've mentioned, bipolar used to be called manic depression, and so far we've talked mostly about mania. But of course, it also comes with some often very deep and dark depressed episodes. The depression is just like a blackness Mm. and a hopelessness, and I hated myself. And um, I just felt like I was a burden and that I was useless. Mm. And I couldn't find solace in anything. And I often think about suicide and sometimes act on it. Um, Mm. um, It's dark, it's really dark. Yeah. So depression, for me, it's lack of appetite, too much sleeping, ruminating on which just means thinking a lot and a lot and a lot, going around in circles about the same unhelpful things or ideas about yourself or... And what kind of thoughts are repeating in a depressed episode? My king lie throughout my adult life was I can't cope. Mm. So if it was in relation to my job, if it was in relation to relationships I was having... You know, I can't, I can't do this. I can't be a good mum. I can't be a good wife. I can't manage this home. I, I, just, I just can't. Mm. And I wanted to check out. Mm. And that's why I would sleep, to, to shut the world out. Yeah. yeah. And then I ended up going to hospital. Um, yeah. When you say hospital, like a mental hospital? Yeah, it yeah. was the psychiatric ward. Right. So it's locked doors, mm. you know, medications given to you, you must take them. Um, When I first went in there, I was under a category B, which means that someone was watching me for the first week of my, I was was suicidal, I was a risk to myself. So they took everything away like shoelaces and I didn't have any sharp objects, but even when you went to the toilet, even when you had a shower, someone was watching Watching. you. Watching, wow. What's that like? It was awful. I just spent my time sleeping to make them go away. <laughs> but they still stood, <laughs> yeah, sat there at the end up. of your bed and they yeah. were still there. And yeah, there were different nurses because they'd be on different shifts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't engage in conversation with any of them or I just wasn't interested. All I, all I wanted to do was die. Yeah. And I kept saying, I want to die. I want to die. <laughs> Like, I had the full experience of being in a psych ward. It's not pleasant. How long, typically for you, would a depressive episode last? Well, I'm fortunate. My depressions last about uh, a few months, mm. and then I do come out of them. Um, like, some people don't come out of their depressions for a long, long time. Wow. I know that if I give myself time, then it will pass. Mm. So you kind of, there's a level of accepting it. Yeah, yeah, well there has been in later years. Mm. And I guess that brings up, you know, we're talking about this in the past tense, you know, and we're looking back at a time when it was really bad for you. Yeah. I'm sensing that it's not as bad for you now, that, that the bipolar doesn't have such a heavy impact on your life. Is that true? 
It is true, but yet it was only a year ago that I was in hospital for depression. Mm. But you're right. Now I'm feeling much more stable. I've got myself a job. I'm trying to get myself fit. I enjoy spending time with my family and my friends. There's many things to be hopeful for. It's time for the question you love the most. What causes bipolar? What causes bipolar disorder? So bipolar is generally considered to be largely genetically determined. Having said that though, there are some interesting schools of thought around bipolar and about the role of trauma and other kind of environmental experiences mm. in the development of bipolar. But I think it's a bit controversial because you'll have the sort of biological perspective which says that bipolar is deeply embedded in your genes and it's the environment only plays a role in as much as it triggers an episode. But we're learning so much more about how our genes are impacted on by the environment. And I've never, I've never worked that way with people. I've never worked with people from the perspective of this is just in your genes because I find that quite disempowering mm. because mm. It's, it says you can't ever get better from this. You can only learn to manage it. And I've always worked with the idea of mania being a defense against depression. And I've always found it helpful to work with it that way. So someone like that for whom mania might be on a subconscious level a defence against depression, somewhere along the line might have been taught that those negative feelings are not okay to have. Mm. Or whether they've felt the need to hold it together for the people in their families who aren't holding it together. Mm. And there's no space for me to be distressed or sad or angry because there's an, already a lot going on with these other people in my family who are overflowing with distress and anger. And so I've got to be the counterbalance. I've got to be the good child or the, the one who holds everything together. There's no space for me to have that dysfunction as well or that disorder or that mess or that chaos, mm. which is pretty tricky because we all have mess and disorder and chaos. So that's got to go somewhere. So mm. it gets pushed down and cut off and denied. And one way or another, that's what I see so much in my clients with bipolar mm. presentation. Mm. It's hard to put my finger on why, but I've got some, I've got some ideas. Um, my mum and dad split up when I was four or five years old and it was quite a antagonistic um, breakup. Mm. Um, there wasn't a lot of kindness or love between the two of them and the breakup, it was pretty messy. And as a child, I accepted that burden as my own. Mm. Um, you kind I've, of blamed yourself to I, an extent. I did, yeah. That led to me feeling quite hypervigilant and quite prone to anxiety. And what do you mean when you say hypervigilant? Just on the edge, mm. on the edge of things, not not relaxed. Just 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 fight, flight, freeze. You know, mm. it's a survival mechanism. Mm. And I think that's what happened when I turned 14, 15, the anxiety had, that had built up in me spat out. Yeah, it's like a volcano erupting. Mm. It's just, it's just it's, it was dormant for a while, bubbling away, and, and then it just exploded. So my PhD supervisor was quite controversial. He did some research, I think, around people who'd been hospitalised, and he 
Well, he did this research where he asked some patients about whether they'd experienced sexual abuse. Mm. And the, the numbers of people who reported sexual abuse was, was startling. Way above the average. It was saying. way, 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 way above the average. Mm. That hadn't been recognised before. And he said the re reason why that hadn't been recognised before was because nobody asked before. So what he found was that there was a lot more experience of trauma than had been recognised. Mm. Mm. Why do you think it's so unpopular at the moment to suggest that some of these disorders are caused by adverse experiences? I think we're not comfortable with the blame and responsibility. Mm. We're much more comfortable with, with it's in your genes, it's kind of nobody's fault. We don't want to confront the reality of the depravity of men, say, mm. you know, that abuses happen. It's also possibly a bit of a reaction to some old school philosophies around Freud always blaming the mother. It was mm. always your mother's fault. And there's probably a, a justified reaction to that. But perhaps it's overcorrected a bit because shit happens and it's awful. Mm. And very often we try to just dilute that or, or minimize it or dismiss it to the point where it feels more bearable. And we're not actually doing anybody any favors when we do that. We're, we are denying the realities of people's experiences and the, the impact of people's experiences. Talking to David and Sally, one thing that really impressed me is that they've both done some really hard, deep work to learn to manage their bipolar. Here's David talking about his journey. There were certain things over the years that I've been involved in that have helped me. One of them was a place called Mind Matters. And I spent some time out in Titirangi, where, where it was located in this beautiful house. And they taught you different things on psychotherapy and um, wellness tools and the RAP, which is Wellness Recovery Action Plan. I managed to do one of those and keep that close by. And then when I was 28 or 29, I went into Buchanan Re Rehabilitation Centre and I spent three and a half years there. Wow. Learning about myself more deeply, learning about this illness. Um, How does learning more about it help you? Oh, because it gives me an insight into what is going on for, for me. I can relate to it better if I can understand what's going on and, and not be absorbed by your story and being able to actually relate to it in a way that is rational and not get triggered, not get triggered by it. Because you're talking about some deep stuff and um, it's very easy to get overwhelmed in the, in the moment. But I've found a way to, to, to relate to my story in a way where I can not feel so triggered, where I step back and, and I'm almost outside of my body and I can talk about things from a third person almost. Are you um, kind of judging yourself less as well? Or? Yeah, I've come to a fair level of acceptance within myself. That's a big word to understand if, you're, if you've got bipolar. Acceptance. Acceptance. You need to be able to accept yourself. Because um, I, I, I keep kind of thinking how angry you must have been at times that, that this has happened to you, that this has been given to you, this 
Yeah. Illness. Yeah. You now you look at all these other people that are, seem to be just getting on with life fine, and you've got this this burden. I mean, oh, especially when I was young, I felt like that. I felt like that all the time, and um, that dominated in my thoughts. And I wasn't a nice person to be around. I hurt my family. I I, I um, destroyed some relationships. And that anger, you know, that anger at this being given to you, that this is being just like thrown on you as part of your story. Where are you at with that now? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm much more quiet, relaxed, chilled. I haven't had a mania for three and a half years. So I'm doing something well. Yeah, great. So I think with me, my, my medication is working well. And also the work that I've done therapeutically hmm. is, is working well. With uh, therapists? Yes, and with also with myself. Hmm. The ongoing work, it's ongoing, hmm. it's every day. You've got to relate to yourself every day. You've got to check yourself out, manage your mood. You've got to make sure that you're doing things right. You can't let things slip out of control because if you do, then you run the risk of, you know, bad things happening. Yeah. These are some amazing tools of self-awareness that you've developed. Yeah, yeah. I guess you've had to, right? I, I've been forced to. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I've definitely developed some insight and some self-awareness and some acceptance and some forgiveness. I forgive myself too for, for some of the stuff that I've done. Not all of it, but some of it. And I realised that I wasn't always to blame because this illness can cause stuff that is out of your control. Like David, Sally's journey to wellness has involved a lot of self-discovery and therapy. However, she gives most of the credit for her recovery to something else. It's my community primarily. I have several groups of sort of trusted people that I can live life with, and that's where wellness is. So I've got people who accept me and appreciate me for all of me, the highs and the lows and the eccentricity. That's what's most important, way more important than medication or whatever else. Um, Speaking of medication, what's your take on medication for bipolar? I am a medication advocate, you know, a proponent of, of medication. I think that it definitely has a part to play. And I've always known or been told that like an antidepressant isn't the fix. It's just a tool to use to get you to a point where you can kind of make some changes, the changes that you need to make in your life. Mm. I know that I will take medications to treat bipolar for the rest of my life. I'm okay with that because I, and I'm okay with that because it helps me. You know, I can see that it's useful, it's effective, but it's not just the medications. What I need to do to maintain wellness is to continue my lifestyle of um, being connected with other people, having good supports. So it's my community and my faith in God primarily and making sure that other people know what's going on with me. Has medication helped you? I think it has. Not always. Mm. I'm on a fair dose of medication, but it is helping. It's keeping me stable. Like I said before, I haven't had a mania in three and a half years. 
So that's meaning that it's obviously doing something there. Do you think medication is always the road to go down or have you seen people manage without it? I have seen people manage without it, but remembering that bipolar is a it's quite a broad spectrum. You know, there can be a, a wide variety of experiences under that umbrella, mm. if you like. Mm. Um, bipolar often can be heavily medicated, largely because the antidepressant medication that that is used to regulate the depressed episodes can trigger the manic episodes um, and then you want to manage the manic episodes with a mood stabiliser and so often the cocktail of medications can be quite complex Mm. and people don't like them because it has all these nasty side effects and and they're not pleasant so it's a tricky question I think medication can be very helpful and sometimes it's absolutely necessary sometimes there is nothing left to do but to provide some sort of buffer for a person so that they don't, they don't go beyond the point of no return. They mm. don't completely destroy their life. If they came up with a pill that you could take once and it, it took away bipolar permanently, would you take the pill? I don't think so because it's taught me a lot about myself. Um, it's taught me about who I am. It's given me a lot of purpose and meaning and understanding of, of, of the world and people. And, and I don't think that I would understand all those things if it weren't for the fact that I'd had these experiences and been down and been up and been, all, been lost and been away with the fairies. I've come back to earth and I'm feeling okay now. And it's, 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 it's all gristled for the bone, you know? Has having these experiences and coming through these experiences allowed you to help other people? It has, yeah. I've, I worked as a peer support worker for two years where I was working um, alongside other people with mental health problems and I was able to see people recover and help people recover. And what was it like being involved in other people's recovery? Oh, it was wonderful. I, I really got a kick out of it. If I've got a friend with bipolar, how can I be a good friend to them? Mm. It can be quite tough being the friend of somebody with bipolar disorder, especially if their highs involve that irritability and caustic, mm. annoying kind of behaviour. Mm. So remember... That's the disorder. It's not the person. Mm. And find the compassion, even though it's hard to find. Remembering that this is what they're going through at the moment. It's not, it's not the core of their being. And if we can hold that in mind and be less phased by the irritability, the annoyance, the destructive capabilities, then we can get alongside and, and support them. We can be that voice that says, hey man, you're not yourself right now. You can be the regulating voice that says, no, now's not a good time to make a decision about that. Mm. Now's not a good time to invest your retirement fund Mm. in this scheme. You can be that sort of calm, stabilizing presence. Obviously bipolar has, it's been a rough ride for you over the years. But what gives you hope now? 
Well, what gives me hope is my family. Really, I've got six nieces and nephews that are that are that are sort of seven years of age and under. Great. I want to see them grow up. I'd love to be at their twenty-first. So uh, I want to keep myself healthy enough so I can be there. Yeah, it's things like that, and um, maybe the opportunity of finding a girlfriend in time. Yeah. You know, something I've always longed for um, to continue my friendships, and I think also to 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 look forward to a bit more laughter. You know, a bit more a bit more joy. Yeah. Those things where you, where you can really cherish life. Those are the things that I look forward to. So if I can manage myself well enough, then hopefully they can come about. I can tell it's important to you that you came here today and told your story. Like, why is that so important to you? Yeah, I've taken this really, really seriously and thought about it for really hard. And you'll know because I asked you one million questions. <laughs> and, yeah, the reason I want to do this is because I want to share my experience with you and therefore the world to see if someone can get help sooner rather than later. Because for me, I was 36 when I got diagnosed and it's too late. Typically it shows up when you're in your teens or early, early 20s. So I think it's great that you're doing a podcast that is about breaking down stigma and just making it normal because having bipolar or having any other mental health disorder is exactly the same as having diabetes or heart, um, blood pressure problems or anything else that you need to manage. And that's what it is. It's, it's an illness that needs to be managed. Yeah. If someone's listening to this, mm -hmm. and maybe as you tell these stories about ele elevated mood and mm. racing thoughts and that, and they're seeing themselves in those stories, mm -hmm. What would you want to say to them? I'd say, if it's affecting your quality of life, then go and see your GP. Yeah, and start there. What impact does having bipolar have on someone's life? Mm. It's pretty disruptive. It's pretty taxing. Mm. The, the lows are really hard. It's, really, it's a really dark and difficult place to be. The highs are destructive, and then you have to live with the destruction and the shame. And the, um, the shame is massive, actually. I, I think that's a really significant piece. The shame is perhaps one of the most debilitating things. So one of the things I love about doing this, this podcast is about trying to destigmatize and and humanise the experience, that these are human experiences. A person can get quite tangled up with that diagnosis, lose themselves in the I am bipolar, mm. this is part of my identity when it doesn't need to be. Mm. It isn't all of who you are. It's part of your experience, it's part of your journey, but it's not who you are. So holding on to that can make a really big difference for people. I think the thing about bipolar disorder is it's, it's manageable. And people live with bipolar disorder and they live very satisfying, productive, fulfilling lives with meaningful relationships and 
meaningful contributions, sometimes in spite of, but maybe sometimes because of what they've been through and how they've grown as a result of what they've been through, which is why I love therapy. That's my, that's the thing I love about the work that people do in therapy is how they come out better, stronger, and more whole than before. Mm. Mm. If someone's listening to this and they're just coming to terms with having bipolar, what would you want to say to them? Whatever you're feeling or whatever you're going through, it's not going to last. You're going to come through it and, you, and, 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 and there's going to be a lot of sunshine out the other end for you. And don't, don't try not to worry too much. It's, it's, it's going to be all right. Th those words might seem meaningless, but I can tell you from my own experience there that it is true. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to say a big thank you to David and Sally for sharing their stories with us and to Nettie for giving up her time. I hope this episode gives you more understanding for anyone you have in your life who lives with bipolar. If you wonder whether you might be experiencing bipolar or this episode has brought anything else up for you, don't hesitate to get hold of someone to talk about it. There's a list of helplines on our website, areyoumental.com. And if you're in Aotearoa, New Zealand, you can call 1737 anytime to speak to a trained counsellor. Don't forget to rate and review the show to help it get out there. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email mick at areyoumental.com. Before I go, I want to say a very special thank you to a foundation who have generously funded the making of this episode. They don't even want a shout out, but you know who you are and I'm really grateful for the support. Catch you all soon for episode six, and until then, have a mental week. <laughs>